here we go, our time in God's Word, and we are looking at the subject of wisdom from the book of Proverbs, and our scripture reading is going to be on the screen to your left and to your right from Proverbs chapter 2 and from chapter 5. Here we go. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. That's our scripture reading this morning. The jazz legend, Miles Davis, perhaps one or two of you have heard of him, was once asked how he was able to play so well and move people's hearts through his music. And his answer reflects what's inside wisdom. He said this, he said, don't play what's there, play what's not there. Yeah, that's good. What's he saying? He's saying that playing music well isn't less than getting the notes right. But it is a whole lot more. And in the same way, living life well isn't less than getting the notes right, the rules right, if you will. But, but living life well, right? uh, knowing who you're going to marry, you know, how to handle that really tough relationship. Should you, should you take that job or that job? Well, to do those things well, it takes more than just rules and notes. It takes wisdom. It takes wisdom, and that's why we're looking at it. And, and the more difficult and the more powerful, in a sense, the piece of music you've been asked to play in life, to extend the music metaphor, the more skill and wisdom you need to help keep you from blowing the whole thing up. And really, there's no piece that's more challenging to play in life than the challenge of having good, healthy, ongoing relationships, right? Which is what we're looking at over these next few weeks. Started last week, and we're looking at it for the next couple. And specifically this morning, we are looking at the wisdom of Proverbs as it relates to our romantic relationships. To those of us who are married, we're going to look at how we can handle being married. For those of us who are single, we're going to look at how we can handle being single. And I think you'll find there's a little something for everybody today, even if you consider yourself somewhere in between. So, uh, a couple of disclaimers here, like last week, before we get going first. I know that you may come to subjects like these a bit this morning with some baggage, maybe some trepidation or some hurt, but listen, while no one message can hit your individualized, specific need or pain, listen, no matter what else you hear this morning, I want you to hear this. God is for you in the midst of your relationship. He's for you, and so am I, and so is this church. Amen. Let's look at four things here, four sort of parts of the message today. We're going to look at, first of all, Christian marriage. Second, we're going to look at what it's all about, what Christian marriage is all about. Third, Christian singleness. And finally, the key to both. So let's go here. Number one, Christian marriage. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that over the last 50 years or so, the idea of marriage itself really has been in decline in our culture. Let's look at a few statistics here. Today, the divorce rate is twice what it was in 1960. 
It's 50 years ago. In 1970, almost nine out of every 10 children were born to married couples, but today only 60% are. 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only 50%, only about half of American adults are married today, or less, really, because that number is dropped further since the survey. Now, without passing judgment on anybody, any circumstance, when we look at stuff like this, when you, when you see statistics like this, we should ask, well, what's going on with marriage in our culture, right? Now, the way to answer that, I believe, would be to actually ask a deeper question, which is this. We should ask, well, really, what is marriage for? What's it for, right? Because if we can understand what marriage is for, we can probably take a better stab at understanding what's happening with marriage today in our culture. So the first answer to the question, what is marriage for? I'm going to give you three. The first answer to the question, what is marriage for? Which was the dominant answer for centuries of human history was something, is something called the dynastic view of marriage. Which means that you primarily got married to fulfill social duties or obligations. In this view, that you chose your spouse or more likely your spouse was chosen for you to get you or to get your family to the place that you wanted to be in society. To, to where you wanted to be culturally or professionally or to have the kind of children that you wanted to have DNA-wise. So the dynastic view said, you get in there, you stay committed to get the social position that you want, or your family tells you you should have. And in this view, you would never get divorced. You'd never get divorced. I mean, why would you get divorced? If you got divorced, you could never get to where you wanted to go in society, right? If you want love, if you want sex, well, that's what you had mistresses for, right? People on the side, so to speak. You, you stay married because you, you ought to remain committed to upholding what everybody thinks of you and your culture's duty and obligations. Love and marriage, love and marriage do not go together like a horse and carriage after all, what's love got to do, got to do with it, right? That's what this perspective asks. And I remember being back in high school when the president of France, Francois Mitterrand, died and famously, or actually infamously, at his funeral, at his graveside, were both side by side. Remember his wife and who else? His mistress, yes, yeah, side by side. And I remember there being such outcry, of course, from conservative folks saying, man, look at that, that's terrible. How could that be that way? You know, France is awful. And then, of course, there was the, the responding outcry from liberals over how regressive the conservatives were and how we ought to be much more updated and progressive and liberated and free like the French were. Now, I love the French, love France, but that's, that's not a new perspective on marriage. That's not progressive. That's not forward thinking. That's actually fairly backwards thinking because that's actually an old and really traditional way of looking at marriage. In that view, you've got your official wife or husband for status, right? Your duty to the country. Then you've got your mistress on the side for love and passion. Now, even in America, though, still today, in some parts of the country uh, that are more traditional, and maybe you're from one of those, you may run into some of these tensions like I did. And let's say that, uh, for those of you who are married, that when you got married, if, if you married someone from outside your culture, either sort of just, again, how you roll, how you flow, even skin color, if you were ever asked when that happened, if you ever asked, why would you marry someone not like us? 
Hmm? Why would you marry someone like them? He or she is so different, right? Uh, What are you doing to us by marrying that person? And if that happened to you, you felt that pressure in that conversation, you were just experiencing a thousand years of history in five minutes. That's what was going on. What was being communicated? Well, it's this dynastic view, right? What's love got to do with it? This is about our family, right? Our community. And that's not necessarily a biblical view. That's a cultural view. The old approach, again, doesn't keep love and marriage together. The old approach, again, doesn't get divorced. If you got divorced, it would show that you got married for love. And only a fool would do that, honey, right? Now, of course, our cultural consensus has changed. The pendulum has swung all the way in the other direction. And since the Enlightenment, dynastic marriage has given way to the second answer to what's marriage for, to the romantic ideal of marriage. This is what we swim in now. You get married to fulfill personal desires and dreams of love or personal fulfillment. Again, back then they said staying married was what was important, no matter how you feel. Now we say what's important in marriage is how you feel, right? If we say now, well, if you can get commitment, great, but that's not really what marriage is for. And that's why we have such a different view of divorce today. See, the marriage is over, our culture says, once you've lost that loving feeling, right? Again, thank you. You're welcome. More, uh, you know, song quotes for you. More where that came from. Not done yet. Again, You lost that loving feeling. Now the marriage is over because what really counts is how you feel about your spouse and marriage. Now, I'm not talking uh, about divorces where there's been some, maybe some abandonment or abuse or or, uh, being cheated on. I'm talking about the vast majority of divorces which happen today because the romantic ideal of marriage is not being fulfilled. Now, those are two separate approaches and views to marriage. Let me ask you. Do they look different to you? Hmm? Well, trick question, they're not. (laughs) They're not different, really. Because underneath each of them is the same thought and the same question, which is this. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Both of these views come to the table of marriage seeking what's best for me. It's just expressed in two different ways, right? The dynastic view saw uh, power, stability, successfully maintaining social obligations as what was most desirable in marriage to help you. But today the romantic view sees personal emotions, sexual fulfillment as what's most desirable in life and marriage to help you. Both of them are in it for themselves. Again, because neither of them approaches marriage, approaches another person and asks, how can I serve you? How can I serve you, right? Old view says marriage is what I do for me to get where I want. The new view says marriage is what I do for me to help me feel how I want. The Bible says, if you're wise and willing to hear it, that marriage is really about something else altogether. What is it? Let's look at the wisdom of Proverbs 2 here. Two verses. It says, wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. All right. So what's Proverbs pointing to here as the real issue, right? The real problem. It's a, it's what? It's a breaking of or an ignoring of the what? What's the word? What's the word? Come on. 
Covenant, thank you. All right, covenant, yeah, it's right there in the scripture. No trick question. I know you're, you're all on your heels now after the first one, no worries. The word covenant, which is the word the Bible uses front to back to describe what marriage is designed to be. So let's give you a third answer. Biblical marriage, then, isn't first a social commitment or second a personal contract. But third, it's a God word covenant. It's a covenant. And at this, again, people can roll their eyes today, right? And they ask this question immediately when they hear the words wedding and they hear the words covenant. And they ask, well, why? Why do I need a piece of paper? Right, maybe you heard this. Why do I need a piece of paper to prove to someone that I love them? And the correct answer is, of course, you don't. You don't need a piece of paper. Uh, You don't need an egg roll. Uh, You don't need a spare tire or a donut or a taco or anything else to prove to someone that you love them. Go ahead and tell them that you love them. But that's not what a wedding's about. And that's not what a covenant is for. See, Tim Keller puts it well. He said, a wedding is not a declaration of present love. Look at this. A promise of future love. Isn't that good? That's what it is. And he's right. I mean, go just to about to any wedding and any culture, and what are you going to hear in the vows? You're going to hear less about declarations of how they feel now, because that's a given. But you're going to hear promises about where they'll be one day, in sickness or in health, right? For richer or for poor, yeah. And I would argue, also as a married person who's done that, who's gotten the piece of paper, quote unquote. I've actually proven my love for my wife more than someone who hasn't gotten the piece of paper because now I've risked more for my love than someone else has, right? I've put all my chips on the table. I put my legal chips in, my financial chips in, my reputation chips in to show my wife that I love her. Listen, it's cost me more to get in. It cost me more to stay in. And it's going to cost me more to get out, right, if, it, if I got out. You tell me, you tell me who loves who more, see. Tell me who loves who more. Now you may be saying, okay, Morgan, you got a point, I don't like that. But that, that just sounds like the old school view, right? Suck it up and do your duty. But nothing, nothing could be further from the truth when, when it comes to what the Bible says that marriage is really all about. So let's ask, then number two, well, what's it all about then? Well, oh, what's inside marriage? Well, two parts, two parts according to the wisdom of Proverbs and then one way to hold them together. Let's try to see what uh, we mean here. First, there is, of course, there is in marriage, there's the sexual component, which we took at uh, a long look at last week in depth, not going to go back to that, but we saw, and again from the scripture reading, you saw the Bible's affirmation of mutually satisfactory sexual expression in a marriage relationship. But let's look at verse 17 here. Who exactly has the adulteress abandoned here in the passage. Well, it's not just a bedmate, right? Not just someone they're going to bed with, but it says what? It says her what? Her partner, right? Her partner. This is the Hebrew word aloof for intimate friend. Someone who is there for you as you go through life. Oh, in other words, the biblical vision for marriage is uniting the two things that cultures over time and space and centuries have always pushed to one room or the other and tended to push apart. Cultures in the past have said on one hand, no, marriage is for stability. Modern cultures say it's for sexual expression. But Proverbs says marriage is for both. Marriage is designed for both sex and stability, passion and 
friendship, all right? But, 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 to keep these two things together and not allow them to sort of, you know, slide to the other side of the room, you're going to need, hear this, a specific perspective, a specific mentality, and here's the word I'll use, a specific orientation toward your spouse in your heart, and here it is. The Bible calls us not to be just stability oriented, nor just to be only sexually oriented, but here it is, to be story oriented toward our spouse. Story oriented toward our spouse. What does that mean? It means this. It means that marriage, and here's the definition, is all about gospel reenactment or a living out of the gospel story over and over again. And here's what I mean. The gospel story is Jesus Christ came to earth, entered into our lives. He made a covenant with us, not just for present challenges, but here's what the New Testament says, Roman 8. It's amazing. It says Jesus is there for us, for our future glory, our future glory, for what we're going to be one day. In other words, biblical gospel marriage is saying to your spouse over and over what Jesus has said to you. Oh, I see who you are now. And I see flashes of your future. I like what I see, and I will covenant with you to help you get there. Yeah. That's what it is. And by the way, that's also why you sign a membership covenant. In the first service, I said marriage covenant when it comes to church. Wrong covenant. All right. It's a different M word, right? A membership covenant. You're saying, man, I like what I see, right? I like what I see. I see flashes of the future, and I'm going to covenant to help get you there, right? That's what it means. So being story-oriented is simply saying that Jesus is committed to your story, no matter what comes. And if you rightly understand that, that's what your marriage is all about as well, isn't it? It's being committed to your spouse's story and living a great story with him or her as well. And if you understand that, if you understand that marriage is about being story-oriented, well, here is what. Being story-oriented rules out. Here's what you can't do if you understand it. Here's what you can't be when it comes to marriage. You can't believe this one thing, among others. You can't believe that compatibility is key to keeping the marriage alive. Now, I could have said compatibility. That's a different marriage seminar. All right, not compatibility. Compatibility. You can't believe compatibility is key. People say all the time, uh, love in marriage, it should come easily. If it's hard, it means I shouldn't have gotten married because love will come easily to the person that I'm married to and most compatible with. But listen, Duke ethics professor Stanley Hauerwas, translation smarter than us, was a Christian himself, and he's famously made the point, among many other people, that no two people are really compatible. He put it like this. He says, the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage, it fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. Marriage means we are not the same after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom yourself, to whom you find yourself married. Listen, if you understand that, how boring is marriage going to be? 
Not at all, right? It can't be because there's enormous challenge and satisfaction in loving someone over decades. It's enormous it's challenge and satisfaction for me loving my wife 15 years into marriage. Carrie is just way different than she was at 25 years old. She's got different needs now. But listen, if I'm after a great story... I'm not into compatibility. Uh, I don't care about whether or not she likes to watch Marvel movies with me. And here's a hint. She doesn't. She doesn't. You're on your own, pal. All right. That's why God made buddies. All right. Here we go. On the other hand, here's the one thing, among others, that story orientation rules in. Here's what you have to believe. You have to believe this, that it only takes one to begin healing. And here's what I mean. Most marriage counseling I do, uh, where where both parties are just locked out, man, they're locking horns, they're shut out, can't move forward, they're stuck because both of them believe this thought. They both believe that the biggest problem in their marriage is the other person. They believe that the other person is so hurt and so wounded and they can't get past it. And they don't, you know, they say, well, I may have stuff too. I may have stuff too. But working on my stuff isn't as important as the other person working on their stuff because if they, they would just get past their stuff, I'd get past my stuff too, right? Hmm. Now, I want you to know that if you absolutely want to strangle, kill, and bury your marriage. Keep on believing that thought. (laughs) Because I've almost done that to mine several times. But, but, if you want to live a great story, have a great marriage story, consider a new kind of thought. And here it is. That in marriage, the problem isn't necessarily the person's woundedness that you're married to, but it's a person's selfishness, selfishness. So your spouse's selfishness, the Bible says, was there long before the woundedness and all the hurts and wounds throughout life. All that those things have done have served to pour gasoline on the spark and the fire of selfishness. The Bible says lies in every human heart, which is why their woundedness comes out like selfishness. Have you ever noticed that? People get wounded. They don't act more cheerful or friendly or helpful, do they? No. When they're wounded, they act more selfish. It brings that out of them, doesn't it? It brings out whether they retreat or whether they attack. They both feel like selfishness because it is. Oh, which now leads you to understand that if that's the case in their life, leads you to understand you've got the same seed of selfishness in your own heart. But now that's so freeing because you can actually begin to work on you. You can do something about you. And because you can now do something about it, you realize now it only takes one to begin healing. It only takes one to begin healing. Otis Redding in his song, Try a Little Tenderness, he put it like this. He said, oh, she may be weary. Young girls, they do get weary wearing that same old shaggy dress. But when she gets weary, try a little tenderness. Not just sentimental, she has her grief and care. But the soft words, they are spoke so gentle, it makes it easier, easier to bear. Yeah, did you catch that? What's he saying? He's saying that what heals your spouse's woundedness, what makes the grief go away, the pain easier to bear, is your tenderness or your selflessness, which after all is what Jesus has done for you. So what if 
what if each person in a marriage were committed to this? What if each person were committed to being story-oriented toward their spouse and living a great love story? What if you went home today and you look at that person that you made a covenant with, right? And you said to them, I don't care what we've been through. I don't care about it. We're going to have a great story in the end together. What if you said, we may be in the chapter where everything's falling apart and it's disaster central and we don't know if the heroes are going to make it. But what if you said to them, I believe we will make it because I believe in our story because Jesus believes in our story. Oh, look, being story oriented, it'll produce faith in your heart. You ask them, listen, honey, how can I help you write a great story? Not just how can you help me write one? You ask, how can we write a great story together? Oh, baby. Right? Oh, boo. Uh, or what's the, what's the other, the bay, B, I don't know, what, what do the kids say these days? B-A-E, uh, this is what Barnabas says all the time to his honey. You say, Jesus is here bringing about our future glory. And I want to walk in that together with you. What if you said that? Oh, that might change things a little, and it will. Let's flip it to the other half of the room here or more. Let's ask number three. Well, what about Christian singleness? What about being single here? Well, if you're single here today, you know how tough it is to be single in all God's people said, amen. Yeah, all right. Well, maybe it's easy for everybody. All right, man. The wrong crowd. Why is this? Why is it tough to be single today? Two quick reasons. First, <laughs> singles today, you feel the pressure of modern culture to find and put your hope in what Ernest Becker calls apocalyptic romance, which means romance or I die, right? Sex or else. And he noted that at one time, our culture strongly believed in God and faith in the afterlife, which in a sense, if you can picture it, sort of took the lid off your life and allowed uh, hope and meaning to come on the inside to it from the outside. But he says now, because our modern culture has said, well, you can't really be sure of all that stuff about God and faith. That's put a lid on the top of our life and culture. And now it pressures you to have to find something inside that, right? Something, as Ecclesiastes put it, under the sun, right? Under the lid. And what do Americans look to now? Well, he said, we look to sex and romance to give to us what we used to get from faith and God. And he put it like this. He said, when God is absent, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. In one word, that love object becomes God. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. Yeah, he's right. And here's how that plays out in modern dating relationships, and even in a lot of marriages. It pressures you into making unwise choices. And if you're single, it pressures you into either having no standards at all, right? Because you just got to have somebody now with a heartbeat, right? Who's got breath on the mirror or something like that. Or it pushes you to the other end. And especially in a, in a city like Austin with lots of successful singles, it makes you unbelievably picky because you got to have the perfect person or you're nobody. 
John Tierney was a U.S. congressman. He, he wrote a funny article a few years ago called Picky, Picky, Picky. And he noted the impossible situation that our culture really has put singles in today. And he began to list a number of the eh, ridiculous slash funny reasons that a lot of his single friends would give him as to why they broke up with a seemingly great person. And here are a few of the reasons he overheard from his friends. One of them was this. She mispronounced Goethe. Which I would say is actually a common affliction, probably in America today. All right. Second, here, here, this one. If she would just lose seven pounds. Oh, man, yeah. Here's another one. Sure, he's a partner, but it's not a big firm. And he wears those short black socks. Oh, man. And finally, well, it started out great, beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head. She had dirty elbows. And he went on to and he did to summarize the ridiculously high standards that he began to find in all these personal want ads and online dating ads, especially from the male side. And he concluded that what most men were looking for in a woman was this. It was a novelist slash astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. And the women wanted something similar. But what he went on to say was this. He said, what this really means, if a person has that high of a standard, it means they really just want to be left alone. Hmm. So our culture pressures singles way too much to make too much out of a marriage partner. Don't do it, man. Take the lid off. And yet, on the other hand, when many singles come into Christian churches, they don't get any relief because sometimes, unfortunately, many well-meaning Christian circles have unintentionally made singles to feel like less than what they really are, less than whole, less than complete, just as they are, sort of like they're on plan B for their life until they get married. Yeah, And you hear this in, in comments like this. We'll go through a few of them. Uh, plan B comments look like this. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone... He'll bring someone special into your life. Any single person here ever heard of that before? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, what did you think? Well, I know, I think I know what you think because I used to think the same thing too. I used to think, hmm, I know that couple over there, that husband and wife, uh, and they don't seem so satisfied with God alone. So how did they get someone special? Here's another one you may have heard. As a single you can wholeheartedly commit yourself to the Lord's work. Yeah. And what did you think? You thought, man, well, like Pastor Morgan or Pastor Brett isn't wholeheartedly committed to the Lord's work? They're married, aren't they? You think, man, I'm pretty sure I could be wholeheartedly committed to Jesus and getting some snuggling done at the same time, right? That's what you think. There's one more. You may have overheard this before. You can marry someone wonderful, God has to make you into someone wonderful. Again, sounds nice, but what does you think? You think, first of all, well, thanks for not thinking I'm wonderful right now, right? Second, you think, again, I've known some pretty unwonderful people, and they've gotten married more than once, apparently. Yeah. And what about that part about marriage making me into someone wonderful as well? I'm pretty sure I'd be up for both God and a husband to make me into someone wonderful, right? You think I could be up for that? All right. So how should, 
how should you view your singleness if you are and handle all these kinds of pressures? Well, so much I could say, but let's just look at one thing. It's the heart of it's found again back in Proverbs 2.17. When you read the scripture, you see it's not just that the person committing adultery here has broken the covenant she made with her husband, but in committing adultery, the woman, look at this, has ignored the covenant she made where? Before God. Before God. Listen, do you see what this is doing? You've got to get this. This is relativizing the importance of marriage. This is saying while a marriage covenant is important, it's less important than the covenant that someone has with God, before God. It's saying what matters more than being married in a marriage covenant is being in a marriage covenant with God. And listen, by the way, you never break the second if you haven't already broken the first one in the first place. And again, this is why a Christian, Paul says, should not marry a non-Christian. Because how can someone without a covenant with God possibly live in unity with someone who has a pre-existing covenant they've made with God? All right, but here's what's really amazing about this. While this thought here, again, it's more or less in seed form in the Old Testament, the New Testament picks it up in droves and all the way over in 1 Corinthians, one of my favorite passages, Paul writes this here. He writes, he summarizes the gospel's view on marriage and singleness. And here it is, you ready? Here's what he writes. He writes, are you married? Great. Are you single? Great. Now, you know what he just did there, right? He just went and blew over centuries of tradition, undid what traditional cultures did then and modern cultures do today, which is to say in one way or another, as a single person, you're not complete and whole unless you get married and produce an heir, right? He's saying you're not, those, those always say you're not complete until you're married. But the gospel is the great equalizer. Singles are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, nor will they be in this church as well. Which means this. The Christian church is not the place where the heads of the five families gather, if you know that reference, and bring their noble offspring to be trained in the glories of Christian conquest, even though we do believe in equipping our children. But the Christian church, hear this, is the place where every person walks in the door as a sinner, repents at the way he or she has made an idol out of something besides God, either marriage or not being married, or judging someone for being married or not being married, where every person falls down at the feet of a glorious and risen and returning Savior, who, by the way, was pretty complete and I'm pretty sure saved the world while single, right? No other faith system can point to that as its center. So if you're Christian, you're single, you've got a covenant already with someone a whole lot more powerful and lovely and beautiful than you'll ever be married to. Sorry, everybody. But it's true. And that thought now points us, brings us to number four, finally, the key to both. How can we do both of these? How can we do all of this, be successfully single or married? Well, If you've been paying attention or you haven't and you're back now because we're near the end, you may have noticed that we've kept on coming back to the one one word, the word covenant. And yet, nowhere have we defined it. Now, I've held that here till last because just bringing out the definition points us to the clue we need to do both well. 
What is a covenant? Well, it's beautiful because it's not just a word here. It's a picture in the Hebrew. It's the word bereath. It literally means a cutting, a cutting. Now, what does that mean? Oh, it means this. See, ancient cultures didn't have a written culture. They had an oral culture. And so when they made a serious agreement, a covenant, they wouldn't sign a contract. No, they would take an animal, they would cut it up, they would sacrifice it, and each party would walk between the pieces to act out what they couldn't write and they would say something to the effect of this they would say may what happened to these animals happen to me if i fail to keep the terms of the covenant they were saying may i be cut up may i be cut off if i don't do everything i've sworn to do and do you know that the new testament has the vision to say, that's exactly what God has said to you in Jesus. See, the prophet Isaiah said to Jesus, he would be cut off. That's covenant language, church. Oh, but here's the beauty of what Jesus has done because he himself on the cross as God represented one party, the party that's sworn to save you and love you and redeem you and forgive you and provide for you everything that you need. Oh, but Jesus... As fully man, he represented the other party. He kept the terms of God's covenant fully, what we could never do. We can't even keep our own rules, let alone God's. And yet Jesus of Nazareth on the cross was both parties in the covenant. Was God swearing to do what God only God can do and swearing as man and fulfilling what man could never be. And yet on top of this, he's more. Because where do the two parties walk between the pieces of a what? A sacrifice, which Jesus was also. He was the sacrifice that was cut off, torn, divided. He got the penalty for what we deserved for a failing to fulfill the terms of the covenant. He paid for them with his own body, fully God, fully man, and the sacrifice all in one picture. Oh, it's beautiful. But there's more. Because the word covenant also has a second and simultaneous and final meaning. It means this. It's a sacrificial feast or another way of putting it is a covenant is a banquet of sacrifice. It's juxtaposing two clashing images. A banquet, something to feast on, but yet something that's been torn and bloody and given up for you. And what the New Testament says is, this is yours now if you're a Christian, and it will be yours forever and eternity at the wedding feast, the wedding banquet of what? The lamb who was torn and sacrificed for you. See, being in covenant with God means you take into you, you feast on the sacrifice of Jesus over and over and over And that changes you. George Herbert was a Christian poet in the 17th century, and he struggled with his health. He died in his late 30s from his poor health. He was never able to have children because of his medical conditions, but he wrote beautiful love poems about God. And this one stands above them all. It's called Love the Third. He said, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin, but quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I'd lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here, love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the grateful, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? A truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Oh, my dear, 
then I would serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Beautiful, you know. And the feminist activist and Jewish agnostic, a woman by the name of Simone Vail, in 1938, she was meditating on this poem. She was suffering deeply with her health, deeply with being lonely and not being married, being single. And as she reflected on it, she had an overwhelming, powerful encounter with Jesus Christ. She said this. She said, in the middle of this, reading this poem, Christ came down and took possession of me. In a biography, autobiography, she went on to say, in this sudden possession of me by Christ, I felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love like that which one can read on the smile of a beloved face. What did she taste, church? Oh, what moved her out of her loneliness and the despair into love that changed her? It was a sacrificial feast. It was a banquet of sacrifice. It was God's covenant love to her in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you today. You must sit and you must eat from this. Oh, it changes everything. If you'll do, you can see the smile of love on a beloved face. This is ours in the gospel. It can be yours as well. Let's go to him now in prayer. Let's go get this church as we close and pray.